Well, something about living in Minnesota this time of year is that we have um, a lot of severe weather. In the last couple of weeks, my phone has made this noise like three or four times. Does your phone do this? Isn't that nice? That's Apple telling us that severe weather is in the area and that we should seek immediate shelter. It's Apple's uh, severe weather alert. And this week when I got yet another severe weather alert, I thought, what would happen if everyone in the state of Minnesota got a God alert? And let's just say somehow, some way, everyone knows this is real. This isn't a hoax. This isn't something to be debated. This somehow, some way, everyone knows, okay, apparently God's real. Apparently Jesus is alive. And he's going to be at vertical church on Sunday morning. Can you imagine the scene? Every news station would be here, national and local or national and, and um, yeah, local. Everyone would be here waiting for a glimpse. Helicopters would just be flying overhead, over Summit Ave, over Grand Ave. Everyone's trying to catch a glimpse of God. The military would probably be deployed to kind of police the scene. And the crowd. Can you imagine the crowd? I mean, two million people every year show up to see the state fair. How many would show up to see God? We're talking millions of people. Everyone in the state of Minnesota and Wisconsin and Iowa, everyone would be here crowded in, shoulder to shoulder, to see God because apparently God is going to be at Vertical Church. Well, guys, the reality is if we believe our Bibles and if we have eyes to see, the truth is God himself really is at Vertical Church this morning. Ever since Jesus sent his spirit in Acts chapter 2, God himself invisibly but truly dwells with his people every time they gather. And I'm not talking about a God's always with me omnipresence. I'm talking about manifest presence. Ever since Pentecost, whenever Christians gather in worship and open up God's word, God himself invisibly but actually dwells. He actually attends and he shows up in a special, distinct, uniquely powerful way. The only question is, do we believe that? Do we believe that God himself, I mean, just look at this room. It's, it's modest. It's meager. Do we believe that the God of the universe is actually here inviting us into a window-rattling, earth-shattering, life-altering encounter with him? Do we believe that? Well, then the only question is, what the heck do we do? Like, if, if he's here, if God invisibly but truly is here what in the world do we do open up your bibles to psalm 100 psalm 100 spirit of god illuminate your words this morning psalm 100 answers the question what do we do 
if God is actually in the building. Look at verse 1. Here's what God says we do. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into, here it is, come into his presence with singing. We're concluding the Real Revival series this morning by praying the prayer I believe God is most eager and willing to answer. Lord, revive our worship. One of the pillars of vertical church is unashamed worship. We don't believe that the the worship prepares our hearts for the message. We believe the message prepares our hearts for the worship. We believe everything we do as a church prepares us for greater, more intense worship. You, You see, worshiping the triune God of the universe, that's not a thing, that's the thing. Worship is the ultimate thing. It's the eternal thing. It's the thing that's most on God's heart. It's what he's most passionate about, and it's therefore what you and I should be most passionate about. And so today, through Psalm 100, God himself is inviting us into revived worship, unashamed worship. And I'm just going to try to show you verse by verse why I'm saying everything I'm about to say. Side note, I want to teach God's word in such a way that you leave church every weekend going, why do we pay that guy? (laughs) Like, that was so clear. It was so obvious what he was saying. Anyone could have got up there and said that with that text. When, When you guys start saying that, I'm doing my job as the preacher. So very, very clearly, I want to just walk through this text with you. Look at verse 1. If you're there, say there. All right, let's lean in. The first thing the Spirit wants to show us this morning is what unashamed worship is. Right here in verse 1. Let's just see it together. Verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Those four English words, make a joyful noise, is only one Hebrew word, and one of the ways that we uh, learn how an old, ancient, biblical word, what, what it means, is to look at the other places it's used in the Bible. And this word is primarily used in the Old Testament to command armies to lift up a war cry. Come on. Over the last 50 years, there has been a feminization of worship. It's just what happened. A lot of us weren't singing worship songs in the early 2000s, but if you were, they were intimate, to say the least. They were like, Lord, I want to climb into your lap, nestle into your chest, and stroke your beard. And, and the guys are like, yeah, cool, I'm going to go watch golf. And what happened is, and ended up where nearly 70%, by 2010, nearly 70% of churchgoers were women. Why? Because the experience was very effeminate. Worship became flowery and dainty and feminine. And of course, there's an element of worship that should be intensely intimate. I still don't want to stroke Jesus's beard, but it should be intensely intimate and emotional. But what God desires in verse one is less Sarah McLaughlin, more William Wallace. You could translate this Make a war cry to the Lord. 
Boys, this means if you want to worship the Lord, you don't have to do, ah. Like, lift up your chin, put out your chest, lift up your... There's nothing more manly than worshiping the God-man, Jesus Christ. It's the manliest thing you can do with your strength. Love the Lord with all your heart and your strength. It's a war cry. And sisters, if you're dating, just unsolicited dating advice, don't date a man who holds back in worshiping Jesus. If he holds his heart back from the Lord, he will hold his heart back from you. But if you find a man who gives all of himself to Jesus, you found your husband. Because he will give all of, yourself, of himself to you. So this is a war cry God's asking out of us. The other way this Hebrew verb is translated, the one make a joyful noise, the other way it's used in the Old Testament is to command a group of people to shout in thunderous applause. So I think at this point, we can at least conclude what, whatever else this word means, it doesn't mean sing softly, right? It's a war cry. It's, it's thunderous. Vertical church, God wants you to sing loud. He wants you to sing loud. I used to be a worship pastor. The number one complaint I received was, the music's too loud. I don't like, I don't like loud worship. Now, some of us have sensory issues. That's a real thing. Some of us should wear some earphones. I love to see little babies with their earmuffs on. But if you don't like the worship being loud, I just want to politely yet pointedly say, that's one more way you're not like God. Because God wants it loud. Why? Because God wants passion. And we all know that passion expresses itself in volume. I mean, just scan the Psalms, you guys. You will see it over and over, an emphasis on volume. Shout to the Lord. Lift up your voice to the Lord. Well, I don't really like drums. The drums are too loud. Psalm 150, verse 5. Praise him with the drums. Praise him with loud, clashing cymbals. That's for you, Jordan. God wants volume because God wants passion, and passion expresses itself in volume. One time, our marriage counselor asked Alex and I, so when you guys fight, do you ever, do you ever raise your voices? And we're like, us? Oh, gosh, no, we would never. And she said, I'm more concerned with couples who don't raise their voices than couples who sometimes do because couples who do reveal that they still care. You see, she knew that passion expresses itself sometimes in volume. And we know it too. Just go to the, the Vikings game. Right? Go to the Vikings. There's, there's not a lot of golf claps happening at the It's unhinged. It's earth shattering. Why? Because the people who will spend $300 to go watch the Vikings love the Vikings. And that passion, that love, it just naturally overflows with volume. And God says right here, exactly. So if you love me, if you're passionate for me, if you still care about me, get loud. Guys, I mean, if we are saved from all of our sins, past, present, and future, if we have peace with God, Romans 5.1, if Jesus is actually 
coming back to bring us to home with him, then we should outshout the bank. We should be louder than the Vikings. You might be thinking, yeah, but I don't sing loud because I don't have a good voice. It's true, you don't really have a great voice. But God isn't after your pitch. He's after your passion. And I'm so blessed by some of our worship leaders whose voices are angelic. But honestly, I'm more blessed by the person a couple rows back whose voice is bad. And they love Jesus too much to care. My mom had a horrible voice. Some of you witnessed it. And her song was Great I Am. And so she would sing, um, Hallelujah, holy, holy, God Almighty. And you're like, God Almighty is right. Her voice was horrible. And she loved the Lord too much to care. So she just went in. Others might be thinking, yeah, you guys can get loud, but I'm worshiping the Lord in my heart. Again, I just want to say politely, that's Gnosticism. That's the ancient heresy that believed that there's a distinction between the material realm, the hands, and some higher spiritual realm, the heart. Jesus never made such a distinction. How, how do you fight lust, which is a spiritual issue? Cut off your hand. Get radically deny yourself physically. To Jesus, what we do with our hands reveals what's going on in our hearts. And we can actually direct our hearts by what we do with our hands. So when your heart is cold during worship, and I just want to say as the pastor, my heart, when we hit that first song, is always cold. I never just roll out of bed warm. So when your heart is cold, what do you do? You raise your hands. And you just let the Spirit heat your heart through a small act of obedience. Dan Jones always says, heart before hands. It's not like I gotta feel something here in order to do this. No, no, you're not gonna feel something here. And since when is the Christian life directed by this first and then this? No, 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 we do this. And we say, okay, Lord, heat my heart as I try to follow you. Don't make a distinction between some material realm and some uh, spiritual realm. There is no distinction in Jesus' mind. So unashamed worship, according to God, the, one, the kind of worship he wants is it's warrior-like. It's thunderous. And now look at verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Why are we always inviting people to serve? Why are we always like, hey guys, serve, serve, you can serve. Because one of the ways God wants his people to worship him, according to verse two, is by serving him. Apparently serving is part of the song. Practically, this means Sunday mornings should feel less like a concert and more like a rugby match where all of us are rolling up our sleeves and engaging and getting dirty and serving the Lord with joy. And I just want to say, as the pastor of this church, I am so proud of you guys in this. We have a church that serves. The worship team, they practice all week long. They show up at a sinful hour on Sunday morning, and they're not complaining about it. 
No one's moping around feeling bad about for themselves. If you go backstage, what's in the air is not grumbling or groaning, it's gladness. They're just happy to be involved. We've got nurses in this church who work night shifts all Saturday night and then leave, go directly from the hospital to vertical kids and start holding babies. What do they know that I don't know? They know that Jesus loves it when they serve. They know that one of the sweetest songs they can sing to Jesus, the King, is the song of serving. And so God says, yeah, do that. Give me that. Serve the Lord with gladness. Now see it, second half of verse two. Come into his presence with singing. You might say, well, I don't sing, man. I'm not musical. I have a bad voice. I don't sing. Well, before I got married, I didn't talk about my emotions. But I'm learning to because the one I love loves when I do so. You see, love makes us learn new languages. Prayer doesn't come natural for most of us, but it's a language we learn because Jesus loves when we talk to him. Repentance certainly doesn't come natural for any of us, but it's a language we learn because Jesus loves to offload sin and burden. And singing may not come naturally, but it's a language we learn because, listen, Jesus loves to love you as you sing. Again, I can just tell you experientially after 10 years of doing full-time ministry, it's the singers who get their burdens lifted. It's those who choose to sing who who leave church with the clouds of depression departed. It's, It's those who sing who have buoyancy when tragedy tears a loved one out of their life. It's those who sing, who leave church every single week and feeling 15 pounds lighter. What is that? That's Psalm 81.10. God says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. That's what's happening. When we open our mouths and sing, God pours out grace upon grace. He's loving you as you're singing. Okay, so that's what unashamed worship is according to verses one and two. Now let's just follow God into verse three. You still with me? All right, here we go. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So verses one and two showed us what it is. Now verse three shows us whom it's for. Do you see it? Know that the Lord, he is God. To give God the kind of worship he desires, you don't have to know everything. In fact, you don't have to know a lot of things. You don't need to be able to precisely parse out the hypostatic union. You don't need to know your position on superlapsarianism. Apparently, the only thing you need to know to give God the kind of worship he wants is that he is the Lord, he is God. Let's not overcomplicate this stuff. I mean, guys, did you catch in verse one, who's this psalm written to? It's not Christians. Look up into verse one. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Who talks to the Grand Canyon? 
Who, who, who speaks to the Mariana Trench? Who tells Mount Everest what to do and then actually expects that it's going to do it? I'll tell you who. God does. The Lord. And they're all going to listen. Isaiah 55, 12 says that when King Jesus returns in all of his glory, the mountains will burst into song and the trees of the fields will clap their hands. So guys, when we worship, we need to remember whom we're worshiping. We're worshiping Jesus, who is God. Across America, all, across America this morning, people are coming into worship and they're coming in late and they're sipping their Starbucks, and they're humming and yawning through the songs. And I'm not throwing shade at them. I'm just asking, do you know whom we're singing to? Like if I got an invitation to meet with the president, I'm on time, I'm well prepared, and I'm fully engaged. And that's the president. Guys, it's just, it's so repetitive that it loses the wonder but we have every single weekend an invitation to meet God God every single week and so if there's 20 minutes of your week for you to be awake and alert and prepared and engaged it's when you link arms with the children of God and meet with God when we worship, let's remember we're not singing to a screen. We're singing to the King. He's God and He's actually in this room. It changes everything. But He's not just a King. Did you see this in the text? He's your King. He's our King. Look at it. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So real talk, what should we do when we don't feel like worshiping? Again, most of us don't wake up ready to worship. So what should we remember? Well, just remember verse three. See it. It is he who made you. He made you. This means if he's given you breath, you owe him a praise. Maybe during the first song, when you come to church on Sunday morning, you just need to look at your hand and preach to your dead heart. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of all things. So you need to look at your hand and say, all things are being held together by the word of his power. These hands are on, these fingers are on this hand because I'm in the mind of Jesus. I'm here because Jesus is thinking about me. And the moment Jesus stops thinking about me is the moment I cease to be. And the same is true with you. If you don't feel like worshiping the Lord, verse 3 says, remember he made you. Look at your hand and let it preach. Remember, now see this, that we are his. We are his people. So now we're not just talking about you're his as a matter of creation. You're his as a matter of recreation. 
True or false, God loves all people. Wonderfully true. God loves the world, praise God. True or false, God loves all people in the same way. False. God loves his people with a special, saving, securing, sanctifying love. That's why you're here right now because God loves you not just with a generic love, God loves you with a special love. And that's why he's drawing you to himself. And so when you don't feel like worshiping, zoom out of your daily drudgery of distraction and all too familiar sin and worries and anxieties and fears and just say, gosh dang it, I'm his. Like, (laughs) I'm his. And you're probably gonna need to say it twice. Verse two, uh, verse three, that we have to say it twice. We are his, we are his people. I'm a mess, but I'm his mess. I'm a whole package of mixed motives and inconsistencies and habitual sins. But before the foundation of the world, he saw it all and he said, I'll sign up for that. Mine. We are his people. When that clicks, worship happens. When you don't feel like worshiping, remember he made you. Remember, he chose you. And now see it at the end of verse three. We are the sheep of his pasture. This is the same uh, writer who wrote Psalm 23, David. This is a clear echo of Psalm 23. It means God promises provision, green pastures, peace, still waters, means God promises to you purpose. There's paths of righteousness that he's leading you in. It means he promises his presence wherever uh, your rod and your staff comfort me, you are with me. Promises pleasure, you prepare a table before me. Promises pursuing grace, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. It promises promise. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When you need your soul to wake up, Grab your Bible and open it up to Psalm 23 and let Jesus, the good shepherd, remind you of everything he has promised to you since you are the sheep of his pasture. Okay, so we've seen what unashamed worship is, verse one and two. Now we've seen whom it's for, verse three. Now look at verse four. It says this, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Notice verse four begins with us entering gates, but it doesn't end with a gate, it ends with a person blessing his name. There's movement, there's progression. Verse four shows us where it takes us, where unashamed worship takes us. Look again at verse Uh, Verse four, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. When Psalm 100 was written, the manifest presence of God was located in the temple. And the temple had an outer court, an inner courtyard, the holiest place, and the holy of holies. And to enter the outer courtyard, you'd go through a gate. And the first thing inside of the gate was the brazen altar, To approach the presence of God, every worshiper had to bring a sacrifice, a goat, a lamb, a pigeon, and offer it upon the brazen altar. But here's the key. Before the worshiper arrived, 
they already had their sacrifice. They already had a heart of thanksgiving and praise. And now as New Testament people, we know Jesus has done away with the temple and the whole sacrificial system because he is the temple, Hebrews 10, praise God. And we are the temple, 1 Corinthians 3, praise God. But the principle still applies. We don't enter with thanksgiving. I'm sorry, we don't enter for thanksgiving. Don't expect me or the worship team to defibrillate your dead heart. Verse four says this, enter his gates with thanksgiving. His courts with praise. So real talk, some of us went through a party phase, right? Am I wrong? Am I Oh, yes, some of us know how to party. We went through a party phase. And if you were a partier, you know you don't start drinking at the party. You start drinking before the party so that when you roll up, you're ready to party. Guys, that's wicked. That's wrong. And yet even partiers seem to know something that the redeemed people of God seem to have forgotten which is the intensity and the joy of the party depends on if people prepare for the celebration. If we show up for the party or if we show up with a party. And for us, we're not drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, Ephesians 5.18, but we are drunk with the Spirit. And so what does this even look like? It means practically for our worship times to go to the next level before church, get in the word. Don't let the sermon be the first time you've heard God's word on Sunday morning. Before church, we get in the word and we say, okay, Jesus, you gotta make my heart hot because I'm about to go worship you in your house. And as soon as that first chord is struck, I wanna be locked and loaded with fresh reasons to give praise to you. It means before church, we pray. Pray for your heart. Pray for me, pray for everyone serving, pray for God to get people out of bed. Heck, maybe you should come early to this church and just walk through the building and say, God, would you come? Would you meet this place with power? It means before church, you should worship. Put your phone away. Get off your TV and worship before you come to worship. So you're entering with thanksgiving. Every house between this church and my house hates my family because on our drives to church every Sunday morning, it's loud. It's obnoxiously, probably illegally loud. Why are we doing that? Because God wants us to show up hot. He wants us to walk in with thanksgiving, not for thanksgiving, with praise. But again, we don't enter and then just stay by the gates. Look at the progression of the text. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks, look at this, to him. Circle that word, to. Bless his name. To bless his name is eulogeo. It means to eulogize, right? To speak well of someone. But more than that, to speak well to him. If I'm talking about you and, and you're out of the room, I'm like, oh man, she's amazing. She has such a great heart. If you walk into the room the language changes. It would be weird if if you walked into the room standing right next to me and I'm still talking about you. 
What happens? When the presence enters the room, the language is directed. Now I'm talking to you. And in verse 4, the language just got redirected. We were entering, we were singing of him. Now we're giving thanks to him. Guys, unashamed worship takes us through the outer courts, through the inner courts, through the holy place, and into the holy of holies, where we're no longer talking about God, we're no longer singing about God, we're blessing him to his face. And now look at verse five. For, it's another word, it's a circle, this is a ground clause, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. Verse five tells us why we unashamedly worship the Lord. Why do we praise him like this? For the Lord is good. Because the Lord is good. That's why, guys. The Lord is good. Have you ever heard someone ask, if God can do anything, can he make a rock too heavy to lift? The way to respond to that question is, whoever told you God can do anything? God can't do everything. There's a lot of things God can't do. God can't cease to exist because existence is, by definition, part of what it means to be God. God can't be unloving because God is love. Therefore, for God to lapse in love, even for a nanosecond, would mean God ungods himself and this whole thing is gone. These are his attributes. They're not things God does. They're things God is. And one of his attributes is his goodness. The Lord is always and only good. And the Lord cannot be not good even for a nanosecond. So we praise him for he's good. It means he tastes good. He's the only thing that will satisfy your heart and he's better than anything this world has to offer. It means he does good, even when it feels like it. This doesn't feel good. Oh, it's good. The Lord is good. It means that somehow all things work according to your good, and what man intends for evil, God intends for good. That means even your sins, which you intend for evil. This is Genesis 50, 20, if you're looking for the verse. Even your sins, which you intend for evil, the Lord somehow sovereignly bends them around so that in final analysis, they will work for your eternal good and God's eternal glory. Like, wow. And then look at the end of verse five. Here's more reasons we continue to praise him. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Every single week for me, it's about the same story. Last weekend, I, get fire, I got fired up. The Lord met me powerfully at church. I started following hard after him, and sometime throughout the week, I fell short of the glory of God. Can anyone relate with that? Sometimes it's, it's Friday, others, it's Wednesday, other times it's like Sunday after lunch, where I give the Lord more empirical evidence that I don't just need love, I need steadfast love momentary faithfulness won't do me any good. I need faithfulness that remains faithful even when I'm not. And according to verse five, that realization, that's not deterrence to your worship. That's accelerant 
When you have that realization, I need steadfast love, that is when worship goes to the next level because that's exactly what the Lord has for you. Guys, we sing because we sin. We sing because we sin, and though we will continue to sin for another 50, 60, 70 years, his love will endure forever. We sing because our faithfulness probably won't make it to the end of the week or even the end of the day, but his faithfulness will endure to all generations. Every week, church family, we lean into our time of worship because the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever and he will be faithful to all generations. And I just want to show you one more thing. This is what the Lord revealed to me this weekend as I was, or this week as I was praying over this passage. Look back at verse one. Just hang with me for a second. Look back at verse one. We already looked at it. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. We already saw that that word, make a joyful noise, denotes volume and passion. Verse two, serve the Lord, underline this, with gladness and come into his presence, underline this, with singing. The deeper question, the one we haven't asked yet is why? Why does the Lord desire this kind of worship? Why doesn't he say, hey, I want it somber. I want it silent, the answer is Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with, not just singing, loud singing. You guys get it? God says sing loudly, sing passionately, sing joyfully because right now and every moment of every day, that's how I sing over you. When we walk in on, on Sunday mornings and that little clock counts down to zero, you know, it's like 35 seconds, 30 seconds, and the band stands up and they strum that first chord, don't, let, don't think that they're starting the song. We don't ever start any songs at Vertical Church. The song is already being sung by God over you. The worship team is just entering in. Guys, God starts the song. God sets the volume. And the truth is, how we sing to him reveals how we think he's singing over us. We sing to him in the way we assume he's singing over to us. Now, if I think God is frustrated with me, disappointed with me, if I'm just hoping he will tolerate me enough to let me into heaven, my singing will reveal that. I will be constrained, very self-conscious, unable to think of anything other than my sin and failure because I assume when God looks at me, he's unable to think of anything other than my sin or my failure. And that's just a denial of the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. It's forgetting the cross. But when you believe the gospel, and I mean believe the gospel, that on the grounds of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God now and always is rejoicing over his people. 
quieting them with his love, exalting over them with loud singing, now we respond with loud singing. We sing loudly because he sings loudly over us. We're not reserved because, listen, God isn't reserved about you. He's all in on you. We sing joyfully because he sings joyfully over us. We sing with love because he sings with love. Can you imagine it? Over us. Make no mistake. You will never sing to him with more joy than he's singing over you. You will never sing to him with more volume and passion than he's singing over you. You will never sing to him with more love than he's singing with over you. So, gospel people, people who believe that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has changed the subject from your sin to Jesus' righteousness now imputed into you. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Let's pray.